today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Hi, this is Scott Thompson, and welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Feel free to subscribe and tell your friends. Coming up on today's show, did you receive your robo-text from the Conservative Party of Canada? Are you excited about it? The Provincial Environment Minister gives his take on the federal carbon tax. What are the PCs doing? And the mayor speaks up on illegal pot shops in the hammer. It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Many Canadians over the weekend uh, received texts from the Conservative Party of Canada telling recipients about the carbon tax. Also promoted that leadership wants to scrap the tax if elected uh, and so on and so forth. Many thought this was uh, an invasion of privacy. I didn't get one, but I would too. I mean, I got a, um, uh, a call on my cell phone today on the way into work from WestJet. You have just qualified for... Bah, 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 bah. No. I don't remember when the last time I flew West yet. Nothing. there's anything wrong with them. But yeah, I mean, I, I don't want to answer that phone call. So text even probably more intrusive. I don't know. It'll be interesting to see, uh, you know, if this is just a sign of the times, technology. Everybody's, you know, it's the way it is now. Uh, and of course, once we get into political parties doing it, uh, how long before everybody else is doing it as well? Let's bring in Duff Conacher. Uh, Duff Conacher, co-founder of Democracy, uh, Democracy Watch, adjunct professor at the University of Ottawa and with us now. Duff, thanks for taking the time. We appreciate this. My pleasure. Duff, what are your thoughts here? When does this become an invasion of space? Well, I think a lot of people actually will be upset um, because they'll think, well, I'm not on any list. I didn't sign up for anything. And, of course, the parties will be uh, sending these messages first to people whose uh, cell phones they have already in their database who are our party supporters. But they're also using robots to try and generate numbers that they think will work uh, so that they don't get a bunch of failed texts back. And, uh, you know, some people who are receiving them who are not supporters of those parties at all. So I think the parties are taking a bit bit of a chance uh, with this kind of outreach. So uh, is this less about the message and more about the intrusion? I mean, it doesn't matter what the message is. Uh, either this is acceptable or it isn't. And oddly enough, I guess if politicians will do, are doing it, it won't be long before um, uh, companies are doing it if it, if it goes well. Um, do you think the, the, uh, the benefit outweighs the cost here? I think for political parties um, in particular, because already we had, don't have really high voter turnout, so you don't want to be turning people off, that it's more risky than for a business, you know, because businesses do this all the time, buy lists, rent lists, and send out uh, these kind of shotgun-style emails reaching a whole bunch of people. There's anti-spam laws now, so they have to be more careful than they used to be on that. But for a business, you know, if someone doesn't buy your product, okay, but for a party with voter turnout already down uh, and every party trying to grow their number of supporters, if they alienate people through this, I, th- I just think it's, it's very risky. I would stick instead to appealing to your supporters and making news so people see the headlines. And if they like what you say, then they'll likely go to your website and support you. But to take this kind of shotgun approach where you're, not sure who you're contacting. I think is very risky for parties. Are other parties watching to see what happens with this with with this experiment? Yes, both the Alberta NDP and the Alberta United Conservative Party 
sent out these kind of robo-texts at the beginning of the election campaign that's happening right now in Alberta. What's the response and, been? Uh, well, I don't think they'd tell you. I mean, they would, they would say, yeah. oh, it's wonderful, I'm sure. Right. Uh, so it's, it's hard to judge whether these things are working for them or not, um, because they have an interest in saying that they do and that everyone loves it because uh, it's cheap. Yeah. And they want to keep doing it for that reason. And so um, I don't think we'll get an accurate picture unless we have whistleblowers coming out and saying, you know, we got half the text back and everyone was very mad at us. Um, that's how we really we only ever get truth out of politics and government is through whistleblowers who, who document the uh, what's actually happening and disclose it. Obviously, this is all legal. Uh, what are the rules here? Well, the parties who and politicians who write all the rules themselves have exempted themselves from all the rules. So for everyone else, there are anti-spam rules and, uh, and uh, privacy rules in terms of gathering someone's personal information and using it to send out a, a spam email or a spam text Part, for the parties, exempt from all the rules. They wrote the rules themselves. They decided not to impose either the privacy protections or the anti-spam protections on parties because they think parties are so important, more important than any other type of organization in the country and deserve to be able to do whatever they want to do. And by doing that alone, all parties are essentially giving lots of people reasons not to vote for them because they're not that special. They're not more important than other charities and they're not important, more important than businesses and other organizations. What and, about uh, what about those that say, you know, this is just technology, uh, it's the way it's done now, you know, blah, 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 blah. Well, um, yes, but there's a way to do it, which is you attract a supporter through doing something through the news or introducing something in your election platform. They sign up on your site and they say, yes, send me notices. And then you send them notices. And they want to save on paper to save the environment, maybe, or just save costs and the parties want to save costs, that's the way to do it. That's the way every other organization has to do it, except for political parties, because politicians decided to exempt themselves from the rules. Is there a way to do this that somehow will be acceptable by the public? In other words, this was sort of around the carbon tax. Fill up now, um, you know, the gas is going up. Uh, more apt to accept that kind of message than typical electioneering. Uh, I think it's dangerous any time because you're always going to be talking about a policy or a scandal. And you, if you're going to use uh, more than your list of people that you've gathered as a party, you are going to be risking that you're reaching people who really don't want to receive that message, may have been open to you as a party and supporting you, but because you're reaching out that way and bothering them and invading their privacy... Uh, will decide. No, I, I have. This is the thing that's pushed me over the edge, and I don't want to. I would never support a party that would do this kind of thing uh, without my consent. So that's why I think the parties have to be really careful about this. Businesses too have to be careful about it. But but you know, businesses are not in quite so a tentative a relationship with people. If people need something, and a business is selling it they'll they'll buy it but people don't need political parties 
in that same way. Hmm. And so someone is uh, doing something in a party that they don't like, it's pretty easy for them to switch or just not show up and vote at all. All right, so I can't let you go, Duff, without asking you uh, the latest on the Jody Wilson-Raybould SNC-Lavalin affair. Uh, I understand that uh, that there's some members of the caucus that are meeting to decide what is going on even today uh, as we speak over the lunch hour. Uh, Gerald Butts uh, has submitted more testimony. I understand that's uh, being released. Your thoughts on, on where this is now? Well, where it is now is we have clear evidence that there was pressure put on the Attorney General, and that pressure is not legal, violates the constitutional principle, violates the federal ethics law clearly, and may amount to obstruction of justice. Gerald Butts, I'm not sure what he could come out with. He may make it look more nuanced that Jody Wilson-Raybould was seeking input from cabinet ministers in the prime minister's office which is fine, and she's allowed to do that, and they're allowed to give her that information. But we have evidence of pressure, and the pressure is illegal, and I don't think any evidence that Gerald Butts is going to be able to disclose will prove that that evidence is not true. We have a recording of a phone call where the clerk of the Privy Council, acting on behalf of the Prime Minister, was putting pressure on the former Attorney General. That's pressure. That's illegal. There's no such thing as appropriate pressure. So the wrongdoing is confirmed. It may just uh, mitigate it somewhat if he comes out with some some uh, information that shows that there were other interactions that weren't so clearly pressure. So we'll just see what he comes out with. And uh, the Justice Committee should also call the uh, clerk back, uh, Michael Wernick, the former clerk of the Privy Council, and ask him two key questions that came out of this disclosure on the weekend. He said he never talked to the Prime Minister about the call, Mm. but he didn't say he never communicated with the Prime Minister. So did he communicate with the Prime Minister or someone on the Prime Minister's staff? In other words, was Trudeau briefed one way or another Mm -hmm. by him? And uh, secondly, the Prime Minister said he was never briefed by Wernick, But that doesn't mean that Wernick, again, didn't brief someone on his staff who then briefed Trudeau, which would, in effect, be a brief from Wernick. Right. So um, their statements were very carefully worded, and they do not answer these two questions. These two questions still need to be answered. After release of the uh, of this recording uh, on Friday took, I'm sure, blindsided many. Uh, at that point, uh, many MPs started asking for uh, her to be removed from caucus. That has gone on long enough, blah, blah, blah. Let's get rid of her. Um, she, of course, uh, yesterday um, uh, asked by reporters if she would resign or what was going to happen. She doesn't believe that she should be removed from caucus for doing her job and, and what she believes is right. Um, what does that add to this? Well... We have this notion in, in Canada of extreme party discipline, which they don't do in Britain, actually, as we're seeing with Brexit. MPs vote against the prime minister and the government all the time, and the government doesn't fall because in, in Britain, the government only falls if there's a non-confidence vote. And there isn't a non-confidence vote unless it's an actual vote that says that the legislature does not have confidence in the government. 
And so um, we should allow our MPs to dissent from the prime minister and from any party leader so they can represent their voters and uphold principles and uphold the law and point out wrongdoing. That's all a good thing. And if Liberal MPs crack down on these two MPs for standing on principle and upholding the law as they saw it, um, then it's going to send a very bad message, and it's a very undemocratic thing to do. These two were elected, and they were elected as Liberals, and they should be allowed to speak out as Liberals. And, and will removing them from the Liberal caucus, will, will that solve their problems? I'm not sure. <laughs> I don't think it goes away. No, I don't think it does either. And uh, it is a problem for the prime minister to be doing that to uh, two women who he said were star cabinet ministers um, heading into an election. And I'm sure there'll be a lot of people upset in their ridings because they do have a lot of supporters, according to all reports. And so you add it all up and uh, it's going to encourage them even more so to get the full truth out there. There's still one month after Jody Wilson-Raybould was shifted from being Attorney General to Veterans Affairs by Trudeau. There's one month that neither she nor Jane Fieldpot have talked about in terms of the details because they don't believe they have the legal uh, right to, given their oath of confidentiality as cabinet ministers. But it will encourage them to get that truth out there if if the uh, party is shunning them. And that's just going to be more information. I mean, really, if they had dealt with this proactively and Trudeau had come out and not dodged eight different ways, they would be in a better place now because everything would be out in the open. And we'd be, if this had all happened a month ago, instead of dragging it out, then, you know, we're just getting closer and closer to an election and the drip, drip, drip is there. And and all of it goes to whether you should trust Prime, Prime Minister Trudeau. Uh, to be prime minister and that having that trust is shown in many studies to be very key for voters in terms of who they vote for and they're essentially shattering it week by week uh uh, as the polls show as as we've seen he has no problem apologizing for things he has no problem shedding a tear for things when needed why not this is can there be anything else we don't know here I mean, uh, it seems to me that the, the solution is, is, is simple in the sense that he needs unity with these two women and himself heading into the next election. Why not fall on the sword and tell everyone what you've learned from the experience? I can only guess that there is some clear evidence, which Jane Philpott has kind of hinted about, that she was shuffled out of the position because she refused, this is Jody Wilson-Raybould, was shuffled because she refused as Attorney General to step in and stop the prosecution of SNC-Lavalin. But don't we and know I, that already, or it's just we well, assume no, it, but we don't have concrete she, evidence? Well, yeah, that's right. She yeah. said to the Prime Minister, uh, is this why I'm being shuffled? He said no, and she said in her statement last Friday that she chose to believe him. Um, and I'm just guessing that Jane Philpott maybe had a different conversation with someone, not necessarily the prime minister, but maybe someone in his office who made it clear that yes, she was being uh, sent out because of this attorney general position, because she wouldn't 
play ball and stop the prosecution of SNC Lavalin. But considering how much information we've already heard from the uh, recorded phone call with the clerk of the Privy Council, can that be more damaging other than confirming? And will really that change anything? I agree entirely. And that's why, as the old saying goes, the cover-up is worse than the crime Yeah. sometimes. And it, it smells. As, as long as that last month cannot be talked about by those two, it smells. And the smell will just linger over the Liberals right through the next election and uh, allow the opposition parties to point a finger and say, why should people trust you when there's questions of wrongdoing? You cover them up. Is this enough for, you know, it was interesting, a, uh, uh, an Indigenous leader in B.C. over the weekend said the sun has set on the Prime Minister. Is this enough to sink him in the next election? Or at the end of the day, will the Liberals stand up and say, hey, look, we're still better on all of these issues than these people are, and the devil you know is uh, better than the devil you don't know? Well, he's broken election promises, like the promise to change the voting system. He's done a pipeline, which angered a lot of bought a pipeline, which angered a lot of environmentalists. But nothing has caused the Liberals to drop in the polls except this. And they've dropped seven to six or seven points in the polls. And so it's clearly important to swing voters and swing voters decide elections. And that's why it's really damaging to them to have this continue to hang over them. Um, But people vote for a lot of different reasons. And as we've seen, a month is a long time in politics. And uh, in another couple of months, something else might swing support back to them. So it's too early to tell. Uh, what do you think is going to happen after this meeting tomorrow with, uh, with the caucus? I think that um, Trudeau will not uh, kick them out, but he will just kind of see the reaction to the public's reaction and the media's reaction to the meeting and what, what MPs from the Liberals say after the meeting. And uh, then he'll make a decision in a few days. All right, Duff Conacher has been with us, co-founder of Democracy Watch, adjunct professor at the University of Ottawa. Duff, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Thank you. Bye for now. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. How does a four and a half cent a liter uh, carbon tax make you feel today? Good about it? Does it make ah? Well, at least I'm doing something. It's like buying a, it's like buying a ticket for the you know the Legion draw on the little boat. You know, I'm not going to win, but it's a good cause. I don't mind. Here's my five bucks. Is it like that, or is it no? It's just a tax grab. We all know this isn't going to mount to a hill of beans because it's not enough to actually change habit. It's just a pain in the ass. And and why do we not create incentives instead of penalizing people? There's the dilemma. All right. uh, The Ontario government has been very adamant against the carbon tax. Minister Rod Phillips joining us to explain uh, his thoughts on all of it. Minister of the Environment, Conservation and Parks for the Ontario PCs. And with us now, Rod, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Oh, hang on. Is it me? Rod, are you there? Okay. I am. Can you hear me? Yes, I am. Sorry about that, Rod. Um, no worries. We all know the cost. We all know, uh, you know, uh, man, nobody wants to pay any more tax. Um, uh, but Canadians seem to 
somehow have a soft spot for a carbon tax, even though they realize that a four and a half centiliter difference isn't going to do a hill of beans to our carbon footprint. But, you know, it's like buying a, a ticket for a charity. You know, uh, at least it feels like we're doing something and, and we may win and it, we're, we're supporting the good cause. How do you balance this? Well, you know, the the federal government has been telling people for better over a year now that if you are serious about fighting climate change, you must believe in a carbon tax. And and Scott, that's just not the case. Uh, the biggest uh, impact on on uh, carbon and on GHG emissions that uh, has happened in this country was getting rid of coal fired plants. Didn't involve a carbon tax, but it means that Ontario has actually done more than than any other province and already well on its way to hitting the objectives that, uh, that the prime minister set. So I think, I think what's happening now is people are starting to realize that uh, there are other ways and we have a made in Ontario plan we put out that meets the targets that, uh, that the prime minister set without a carbon tax. But they're also starting to see that although, you know, a, a, you're, you're right, economists say that a $20 a ton or a $50 a ton carbon tax isn't going to have an impact. They say it has to be $300 uh, a ton and that would mean a 30 cent increase in gas. But but uh, but they're also they are starting to see that four and a half cents at the pumps, eleven and a half cents uh, by the time we get to 2022, that does affect things. Uh, you know, six hundred and fifty dollars a year for family on average, and of course it depends how much you drive and and uh, and how you use your cars. These are these are things that uh, that are going to start to affect people because six hundred and fifty dollars is a lot of money. Uh, so uh, many have said that they want uh, the PCs to have some sort of plan. What is your plan for this? So, so we brought out our plan, and it's a, it's, a, it's a plan for the environment. It deals with clean air, clean water, deals with cleanups, as we've uh, done and continue to do down in Hamilton Harbour. Uh, but on climate, um, it deals very specifically with, first of all, setting a target, which we think was the right thing to do. So we agreed to the target that Justin Trudeau set and the world set uh, of a 30% reduction over 2005 levels by, by 2030. And then we have eight specific steps. It involves ethanol and fuel. It involves um, the, our carbon trust, which is $400 million we set aside to invest. It involves emission standards on large polluters, because we always said the polluters need to pay their share. Uh, energy efficiency when it comes to natural gas. Of course, transit. And, uh, and we've already heard and we'll continue to hear significant announcements around more transit, billions of dollars being spent. But what it doesn't have is is a tax on families and a tax that turns, you know, and says that basically, I mean, when Justin Trudeau talks about, you know, punishing polluters, what he's really talking about is punishing commuters. And, you know, driving a car for most Ontarians is still something they need to do. Heating your home is certainly something that we all need to do in Canada. And we don't think it's fair to punish people uh, for uh, for heating their home and driving a car. And it's not necessary because we can hit the targets the Prime Minister said. Why does this seem to be a uh, a fight between extremes it's it, it seems to be turned into either your you believe in this and you buy into it or you don't you're into fossil fuels or you're not you're into uh, uh, renewables aren't you not and, and you know as you've said uh, and as I said in a commentary today we didn't get here overnight this isn't going to be solved overnight uh, we, the, the solution lies somewhere in between it does it necessarily mean you know putting the boots to everybody that consumes fossil fuel despite how efficient it has become just so we can go uh, uh, renewable I mean my goodness it, it seems we're cutting off our head here just to uh, you know despite our face here 
Yeah, this is, Scott, I think you're you're exactly right. This is, you know, people are, as, as you said, people want to do the right thing when it comes to the environment. We all understand that climate change is an issue. We you can see that in the more frequent rainstorms. We can see the problems we have with uh, infrastructure that's not keeping up with the weather. So people aren't saying there isn't a problem. But um, I guess, you know, it's a different approach. I mean, the Kathleen Wynne approach and, and the Justin Trudeau approach is to punish people and, frankly, to say you're a bad person because you drive a car. Well, you know, this is ironic because for 15 years we didn't get the kind of investments that we should have had in things like transit transportation to give people other options. And so I think the people who make that argument make it because they're trying to make their point. Uh, but at least people in Ajax, uh, where I'm from, they don't, uh, they don't appreciate being told, you know, take, a, take your kid to, uh, to a hockey practice on the subway because there isn't one. Right? And they understand that um, when you put a tax on diesel fuel, we talk a lot about the gas t- gasoline increase, but it's seven cents a liter on diesel fuel. Um, you know, that's another 50, 60 bucks every time a truck fills up. Everything that we eat, all the food that whether it comes locally or internationally comes on a truck. So those are costs that people are going to feel. And, uh, and again, if... If there wasn't a plan that did what the federal government said we should do, which is that 30% deduction that didn't include a carbon tax, then I guess we could be having a conversation. But this is a, it's a bad tax. It won't work. It's unnecessary. Um, and, um, and I think people are, you know, people are upset about it. And, you know, I think the federal government is going to hear about that. What do you say to those that say that the PCs do not have a plan? They're just ignoring it. I mean, they'll constantly pay that picture, uh, paint that picture of the premier. Yeah. And I'd say, you know, go to the website, the, you know, Ontario Minister of Environment.ca and look at our 53-page plan. Um, look at the comments we have from, from experts. Uh, understand what we are talking about doing and how we're going to hit the objectives that, uh, again, that the federal government established. Um, it's simply not, uh, not true that uh, our government does not have a clear plan to deal with. And by the way, other elements of the environment, clean water, uh, you know, clean air, uh, how we deal with excess soils, waste, uh, how we deal with litter. Uh, so there's a, there's a full plan there, but I think, I think, you know, I mean, this is obviously a partisan issue in an election year. Um, it is obviously something that the federal liberals have said that they want to run on. And, um, and we're just going to keep making our arguments and keep making them clearly. Uh, you know, you now have, you know, a, uh, a majority of the provinces, Scott, you have, you know, six provinces and, and there's four of them that are, that are taking the federal government to court, including ourselves and our, our court case is, uh, middle of April. But you also have, you know, NDP, Alberta, who doesn't support the federal government's climate plan, and the Liberal government in PEI that doesn't support the federal government's climate plan. So there's a lot of people who are trying to get to the same objective, which is reducing greenhouse gases, who don't agree that uh, the federal government approach is the right approach. And uh, again, we just have to keep repeating that message, make sure people understand that those costs are going to affect them, and make sure we keep working on our plan, which is going to do the job to reduce greenhouse gas. Rod Phillips is with us, Minister of the Environment. Last question, Rod. Uh, why not implement your plan now and not put us through Trudeau's? Why just not? If yours is great, why not implement it and we don't have to go through this? So we are. Uh, now, obviously, the problem is that the federal government is still insisting on, on putting in place this carbon tax, which is going to punish families and, and be bad for, bad for jobs. But we are already, we are consulting on our emission standards. We have already put out our paper on fuels uh, in terms of ethanol and fuels. Our waste paper includes our plans to get organic waste out of, uh, out of dumps, which is important because that creates methane gas. 
60% of waste food goes to landfills, and that turns into methane, which is a very powerful greenhouse gas. So we're already implementing the plan, as people would expect us to. And, you know, we're continuing to want to work with, uh, with the federal government. But uh, I think, I think they, you know, they want to convince people, and as to your first question, that the only way you can fight climate change is with a carbon tax. It's not true and it's not necessary. So unfortunately, we have to spend some of our energy and time, um, you know, pushing back on them on this. But we're going to keep doing that because this is this is unfair to families. Rod Phillips has been with us, Minister of the Environment, Conservation and Parks for uh, the PCs of Ontario. Rod, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you, Scott. Take care. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. We're talking about uh, the Premier's comments uh, the other day and speaking of Hamilton when talking about the opening of retail pot shops uh, in Ontario and illegal operations dispensaries still running in Hamilton, uh, for some reason, as he said, uh, is drawing attention to this. Let's bring in the Mayor for the City of Hamilton, Fred Eisenberger. He is with us now. Mayor Fred, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. Hang on, is it me again? Let me try. Hang on. Fred, are you there? Yep. There, okay. there, that's better. No, that's it's, better. It's, it's not your fault, Fred. It's mine. Fat fingers at this end. Yep. Uh, I got to hit the magic button. <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah. So uh, your thoughts on what the Premier had to say? Well, you know, I, I understand the Premier's got a lot of information coming at him uh, on, a, on a day-to-day basis, minute-by-minute basis, I'm sure. And, uh, you know, the information that he laid out there uh, would have been appropriate maybe six months ago or previous to that. But today, uh, the uh, the status is actually quite different. So the police has police actually in, co- in collaboration with the Ontario Provincial Police, who are you know basically the uh, the the overseers of the Provincial Joint Forces Cannabis Enforcement Team, have shut down uh, 29 uh, illegal uh, cannabis operations out of the 80 that were uh, in existence before the. Twelve of them still exist, and the uh, the difference between the two have uh, have uh, voluntarily closed as a result of either preserving their right to open up in the future, uh, and that was a you know a date definitive that uh, they had to uh, had to be gone by, or or you know obviously are concerned and subject to potential two hundred fifty thousand or a million dollar fines. So uh, that's where we're at today. Twelve. Uh, we have some pop up locations, and of course. Uh, Two uh, legal locations coming up: one in uh, in the Centre Mall and one in Dundas. And I expect that they'll be up and running uh, in the next couple of weeks. Uh, why does this seem to be more of a problem for Hamilton than other cities, or does it? Well, I don't know. I have not made the comparisons. I, I, other communities have had illegal operations as well. We did have quite a few. Uh, Eighty is uh, you know a, a large number, and it's uh, I, I guess a testament to the popularity of the product. Uh, in Hamilton, and so, uh, but now today we're down to twelve, and you know the reason it's uh, it's, it's still slow going is that Hamilton was one of the first to actually seize uh, the entire location, so they needed to do a lot of preparatory work to ensure that that kind of uh, seizure of property and building uh, would hold up in court, and uh, and today we're we're awaiting to see what the courts do with the uh, the fines that the uh, provincial uh, legislature judiciary has uh, has laid out which is $250,000 for an operator and a million dollars for a for a landlord and so uh, you know these these are not fines that are that are set by or delivered by the municipality this is something that has to work its way through the courts and so we'll see what the courts actually end up doing you'll you'll know that previously when the police shut down a uh, an illegal pot shop 
there were no fines in place to help any significance, and it was a slap on the wrist or a peace bond, and, you know, the two days later, they were back up and running again. So that's changed significantly, and I expect that the 12 that are remaining will be uh, shut, down, shut down in due time and, and could very well be, uh, you know, buildings that are, or properties that are also seized to uh, shut, that, shut them down permanently. Or, or hopefully they, uh, they get the message and uh, that the courts follow through on the finding that's out there and available to them and, uh, you know, are, are deterred by continuing by, by those fines. Are you concerned that those penalties, once these all do go to court, will not be severe? And if that is the case, I mean, this could be an ongoing situation for the city, no? Yeah, uh, there, that is a concern, and, and it may very well be that the penalties aren't, aren't strong enough. Uh, you know, when they're making uh, $80,000 $80, uh, you know, a day or a week, uh, you know, that is not, uh, relatively speaking, a, a significant deterrence, a $250,000 fine. Uh, one-time fine uh, may not be a deterrence for the amount of money that they're actually pulling in on a day-to-day basis. So, you know, the the fine has to be punitive, and uh, it has to cause them to think twice about staying open. And uh, I'm not sure that that's that's there yet. Now, the courts haven't we haven't heard a case yet that has gone through the courts, so we don't know what the uh, what the courts are going to decide in terms of that final number. We hope it's the the maximum penalties, uh, and if it is, I, I have no doubt that the uh, the remaining. Uh, uh, operations will uh, will think twice about staying open any longer. Are citizens concerned about this? Do you get much feedback from this? Uh, you know, I, I, there's two levels of feedback. Interestingly enough, one of them is obviously why why the heck can't you close them, and what's the what's taking you so long? And I think you know part of the answer to that is that the police need to uh, you know be very careful about uh, how they they capture the evidence, how they capture the property how they charge and all the documentation goes with that or else uh, it, it's something that can get thrown out in court. So that's that's one area of concern I hear from people is why is it taking so long? On the other side of the coin, uh, we have folks coming in and saying, why are we shutting all these dispensaries down? Yeah. Uh, people demand this product. Uh, they're out there buying uh, buying this material. And, uh, and, you know, some people need it for medical reasons, and we're narrowing the opportunity for them to actually get access to it. And so, uh, you know, I hear, I hear both sides of the, uh, the issue, and, uh, you know, both of them are legitimate, quite frankly, because today there's a legal product out there that uh, is now being dispensed by illegal uh, black market uh, operators uh, without any uh, legal operations in place at the moment. And so uh, I think the, uh, the legal operation will certainly help uh, people get to uh, the, the, a location that's sanctioned and, uh, and where they can get actually uh, regulated product. Uh, but uh, you know, all the other ones out there, they're still uh, you know, flying by the seat of their pants and basically getting product. They have no idea where it's coming from and what's in it. And so the whole purpose in, around uh, you know, legalizing is to get, get out from under the black market in this process and get into a regulated, legalized uh, dispensaries that's open and public and uh, you know exactly where the product's coming from and you know what you're buying. Uh, is there room for both in Hamilton, or is that not an option at all? I mean, you talked about, obviously, the demand for the product here. There's two licensed stores right. here. They're not open yet. Um, right. how, how, how does the city move forward on this? Well, I mean, we, uh, we follow the law. Clearly, uh, the law says that, uh, you know, the only uh, way that this can be dispensed is through the Canada store, the online store, and through, uh, through uh, uh, sanctioned and, uh, and uh, licensed 
uh, operations uh, that are that are forthcoming in the next couple of weeks. I expect that uh, you know once the supply of regulated uh, grow up uh, product is available and, and increases, that uh, the the uh, demand and uh, and the ability to get additional store locations throughout the city will also increase. So it's not going to be limited to two locations. The the market will dictate. How many more locations are necessary? And I think the province will determine what the license allowances will be based on the availability of the product. So that's going to increase. Uh, you know you, you know that uh, the supply is being increased as we speak by various operations throughout the country. And uh, as that increases, I think the uh, demand for the product will still be there. Uh, the, the delay in terms of getting it online is, uh, is, is affecting some people that are using this for medical reasons, can't get it quickly enough to deal with their medical issues. And so I think, uh, I think more dispensaries in the city is probably uh, forthcoming once we get past the initial supply phase. Mayor Fred Eisenberger has been with us, Mayor of the City of Hamilton. Uh, Fred, as always, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you, Scott. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML.